Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. After weeks of motions, conjecture, drama, and intrigue, Governor Eric Greitens' felony invasion of privacy trial is slated to begin next week. He's accused of taking a photo of a woman he had an affair with without her consent and placing it in a position to be electronically transmitted. In one of the few public statements he's made since getting indicted in February, Greitens declared in mid-April that he would be exonerated in a St. Louis courtroom. A court of law and a jury of my peers will let every person in Missouri know the truth and prove my innocence. Even if the governor prevails in court, he still faces tough sledding politically. He still faces another felony charge related to obtaining a charity fundraising list and potential impeachment in the Missouri General Assembly. Some Republicans, like Representative Shemed Dogan of Baldwin, believe a not guilty verdict will not salvage Greitens' standing with legislators. I mean, under that standard, you would have a Governor Harvey Weinstein or a Governor Bill Cosby up until last week or a Governor O.J. Simpson. On this edition of Politically Speaking, we preview next week's trial and take the pulse of Greitens' political prospects. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. And we're going to be doing something a little bit different this week. Uh, Joe Manis, Rachel Lipman, Marshall Griffin, and myself have insanely busy schedules today on this Friday when we're recording it. So unfortunately, we're not going to be in the same room together. But I'm going to talk with Rachel and Joe individually about what to expect at next week's felony invasion of privacy trial and all the developments in the political world. So it's 721 in the morning right now on Friday. Joining me in studio today is Rachel Lipman. Um, she's about to go to the second day of jury selection in the Greitens trial. Both of us covered this process at various points yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, I could explain it, but I think people are tired of hearing my voice. Rachel, explain to people who haven't experience this type of thing, what jury selection is like. So this was a special summons of 160 St. Louis residents. This isn't the normal pool that they'll pull in just for your ordinary sort of run of the mill, assault, robbery, etc. less high profile cases. They came into the courthouse yesterday and the first set of 40 were brought up and given a questionnaire. And that's when they're asked questions like, how much have you heard about the case? Are you following this case? Are you actively seeking out information about it? And then the attorneys on both sides use what is in those surveys to decide whether they want to question a person further, try to get at some of their answers, or whether they think they should just be struck from the jury pool because of bias. There's also other reasons that these individuals can be struck. Uh, One woman yesterday had some medical issues that would have precluded her from participating, Um, looked like she had some kind of anxiety. Others had pre-planned trips, medical reasons, family reasons, etc. What they're doing right now is winnowing down this pool of 160 to they're hoping about 40 to 60 individuals who will come forward to sort of a second round on Monday. And that's where you're going to get some of the detailed questions about, do you know police officers? How do you feel about certain elements of this crime? And really get the 12 uh, jurors, and I think it's two or three alternates that they think can give the state 
and the governor, Eric Reitens, a fair trial. Speaking of the governor, he was present. He was. This, this is, is the first time he has been in court during it, this entire process. Um, I think it was Robert Patrick of the Post-Dispatch who mentioned how surreal it was to have a sitting governor sitting as a defendant in a criminal trial. It, that's not to say that this is un, completely unprecedented. Former Governor Roger Wilson did plead guilty to something after he was in office, but this is unprecedented. Right. Ne- never a, before has a sitting governor been on trial for something, especially as serious as a felony. And you don't, it, you realize that it's him when you're sitting in court. You're like, oh, that's the governor. And you're so busy watching, you know, to see who the juror is and how they're being questioned. And um, it was Scott Rosenblum who was handling jury selection, not surprisingly, for the uh, defense team. And then you would keep looking over and being like, that's that's the governor. And for those who were curious, he was wearing a dark suit and a purple tie. He had foregone his usual button-down shirt with a blazer, no-tie look. And jeans. He was not wearing he, jeans. Correct. He was not wearing jeans. Um, so one of the things that people like Rosenblum were zeroing in on, and I had never seen Rosenblum in court before. and it He was, has this down to a polished it, shtick. <laughs> it, 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 it was a sight to behold. One of the things that he was really zeroing in on was whether any of the jurors had heard about this case in the media, and I think a lot of them had, Mm -hmm. and whether they had formed an opinion about the situation based off that coverage. I'm going to play a clip now from Susan McGraw. She is a law professor at St. Louis University Law School, and she was on St. Louis on the air this week talking about the role of publicity and jury selection. Most of the people who get called to be jurors are going to have heard something about the case. If we had to strike every juror who knew anything about the case, we'd never be able to pick a jury. But we are going to pick, uh, strike people who have already formed an opinion about the guilt or innocence of Governor Greitens and who can't put those feelings aside. And I saw that happen a couple of times. I'm sure you saw that. You had a quote of somebody saying that, I think he's guilty and the only reason he's not in jail because he has money. And there are going to be some Greitens detractors who are like, yeah, I hope people have an opinion about this and they're on the jury. But frankly, that's not really how criminal trials should work. People should go in to a jury without an opinion and just decide things based on the facts. That's how every other case works. And I think that it, it's not unreasonable for the governor's team to strike people that clearly have formed some sort of opinion on this. Right. And can't be uh, and can't try to set it aside. One of Rosenblum's favorite lines is you can't unhear what you've heard. You can't unsee what you've seen, trying to get people to admit that, yeah, what I think about this case may impact me going forward. It was interesting. They didn't want necessarily low information jurors, but they wanted people who weren't seeking out information about this on their own time, like just kind of hearing about it in passing because you have the local news on in the background is one thing. Actively clicking on links or searching for it or listening to this podcast or reading about it every day was pretty disqualifying you from this this trial. I, I did hear one juror said that they got their information from both like the Post-Dispatch and, quote, NPR Business, which I have no clue what that is. But Could be Marketplace. Who knows who, at this point? Who, who knows? But um, And I just want to make this clear. We're recording this, and it's going to be posted, I think, while jury selection is still going on in the afternoon. Judge Burleson has said he would take into consideration possibly turning it into a bench trial if things go haywire. At this point, while I don't think we want to predict anything, the fact that they got 17 out of the first 40 
probably means that a jury trial will continue, barring like them only getting five more from the the next batches or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Burleson did seem... I won't say pleased, but at least kind of acknowledge that that sort of 42% rate moving forward would give them a big enough pool to conduct that more kind of uh, in-depth voir dire on Monday. Whether they think as they keep drilling down into those questions, they concede a jury pool, I don't know. He was also at a very strong and admonishing those who will come forward on Monday. Don't seek out information about this case. Don't talk to anyone about this case. Don't do anything that could lead you to form an opinion about this case before you come in. And if you do, you know, if your friends start talking about it, leave the room. Um, If it comes on TV, turn it off and let the sheriff know so that he can convey that information to the lawyers. So potential jurors do not listen to this podcast. If you're listening, turn it off and talk to the bailiff. And and, and just delete it from your iPhone. I want to go through some of the big things that I think are going to come up at trial next week. Um, Both of us have talked to oodles of experts and we've been in court for God knows how long, many hours <laughs> over the last two or three weeks. More than we really want to know. And, and, and there, there's been just lots of motions and subplots, but I think that we can really distill this case into a couple of simple things. Mm-hmm. The first thing is the fact that as of now, Friday uh, at 7.29 and 7 seconds, the prosecution does not have a photo in their possession. And that's important because Greitens is accused of taking a semi-nude photo of the woman he had an affair with without her consent and putting it in a position to be accessed by a computer. So let's talk about the fact that there's no photo first. I'm going to play a clip now from Anders Walker. He's also with the St. Louis University Law School. I think the major question is the photograph. Was there a photograph? If not, then there's no case, because the whole issue hinges on whether a photograph was transmitted And if, in fact, the governor never took one, then I don't think the jury can convict. So we don't know if the governor took the picture, obviously. Only the governor knows that. But it's not the governor's responsibility to prove this. It's the prosecution's Mm -hmm. burden to prove that he took this photo. I think that the biggest issue with the lack of the photo is you have to prove in this particular crime that you took a picture of somebody in a nude or semi-nude state. If you don't have a photo, I don't know how you can prove that. Well, I think if you have a a witness and who who saw what happened, either you know the woman saw him take the photo and therefore can testify, I saw the phone, saw the flash, actually saw this. I think you'd be able to make the circumstantial case that a photo was indeed taken. The twist in this case, though, is that the woman K.S. has said every time that he had her blindfolded and that the only way she knew that a photo had been taken and knew is in quotes here in that sense and that she she doesn't know what that flash actually was is um, that's how they know that the photo was was taken because she saw that flash but she didn't see a phone in the basement she didn't see a camera in the basement she said she hasn't didn't see any of those things when they went down to the basement for the first time. So I think you could make this case circumstantially with a witness who saw everything. Either there was a third participant or a fourth participant or whatever in the act, which we know there isn't in this case, or a witness actually saw the phone come out or saw the photo afterwards. Like he might have pulled up the blindfold and said, here, look at this. And we don't have that in this case. So yeah, it's all going to come down to the woman, KS, and whether 
she is believable and whether people, you know, can can jurors will trust her enough and believe enough that the flash was a photo. And that was a major point uh, when I was talking with Catherine Banks of Washington University Law School, because there's no photo. She as be- of now. As of now. That could come up at some point, and I don't know what the rules of discovery would mean if that happened. Let's let's not go down that hypothetical route right now. Too many rabbit holes. Too, too, too many rabbit holes. She believes the woman's testimony will be, be key, and this is what she had to say about that. It's going to be essential. They're going to need the jury to find her to be a credible witness to be able to um, make their case. And so it's going to be very, very important. And those are issues that are often thought to be better decided by a jury as opposed to a judge. Um, and And so um, her credibility is going to be absolutely crucial um, to the case going in the prosecution's favor. And we've seen that in the the defense understands that and a lot of the motions that they have been filing in the lead up to this is designed to develop the evidence and develop sort of the, the narrative that this woman's testimony has changed a lot, not necessarily about the core story, but about kind of surrounding issues, tangential issues to the incident in the basement that's been charged. Now, let's keep in mind some some things about the woman here. She has never spoken publicly about this. Correct. She did not actually break the story of this situation in 2015. Her ex-husband did, who, and he originally said he was breaking the story because he was mad about what Greitens did to his ex-wife. It's turned out that uh, if you if you if you read the woman's testimony, both in the deposition to Gardner's office and the house, this this guy was incredibly vindictive about hanging this information over her head. His attorney received at least one hundred and twenty thousand dollars from an unknown source, uh, and it was delivered to him at least one one part of it by uh, Scott Vaughn, who's heavily associated with an interest group that the governor really pissed off, as we talked about in other shows. Yeah, and what's interesting is that that lawyer, Al Watkins, sent out an email uh, yesterday to the media. Um, the judge has ruled that full names will be used in this trial. So uh, for the first time, this woman's full name will be kind of out there in public in a broader sense. People know who she is. That name is out there, but it's never been kind of done in, in a broader sense. He sent out an email basically saying, you know, I wish that you would respect her privacy because her ex-husband never wanted that. And it just kind of is an interesting other little Well, I will just tentacle. say, I mean, it's going to be up to our editors about whether we do that or not. We've been talking about that internally, and I'm, I'm not going to get into that because it's not our call. But I will just say, like, if she is identified, then he's identified too. Right. And, and if he is identified, she is identified. And a lot of the things that he has said throughout this process will then be attached to an actual person and not necessarily to initials, which is a side issue altogether. Um, but my, my point for bringing that up is, you know, it's not only going to be um, her first time speaking publicly about that in an open court, but she is going to be aggressively questioned, I think, by the defense. And she- I, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll be very I'll be curious to see who does that cross-examination. Um, Scott Rosenblum, we assume, is probably going to be doing sort of most of the opening, closing questions. He's really the trial guy on this legal team. There is a, a, a woman attorney on the team, Michelle Nasser. Uh, she's a former federal prosecutor from Chicago who's now a partner at Dowd Bennett. That's at Dowd and Jim Bennett's law firm. And I wonder if they don't have her on this just to be the one to question 
chaos. Um, the, the judge has ruled that it will be one attorney questioning one witness, so it won't be that both Rosenblum and Nasser will be able to question the woman. So I'll be curious if they don't have a woman question her to have it be it seem a little bit less aggressive in that sense because Rosenblum is an, is an aggressive attorney. That's kind of how he's made his reputation. And I want to be clear about something, and I think I've made this point in previous podcasts. Lawyers are hired to aggressively advocate Correct. for their client. And, and I would include Al Watkins in that. Even though we've been um, looking into which entities paid him, I certainly do not begrudge him for aggressively stumping for his client in, in the ex-husband. And nor do I necessarily like take offense to the tactics the Greitens attorneys are doing because that's what they're supposed to do. And if, they haven't been sanctioned for using these tactics. So they've been within, you know, the bounds of the four corners if, of the law. If they weren't actually doing all they could to to clear Greitens's name, they could actually get in ethical trouble. It is it is their duty as attorneys to do that. I want to make that clear right. when I make this next point. Because some of the things that they're they're trying to do have elicited criticism from, I guess, people within the political community. One of the things that they're trying to fight against is the prosecutors put a motion trying to prevent the defense attorneys from talking about the woman's sexual and counseling history. Mm -hmm. um, that upset a number of activists who demonstrated at the courthouse steps on Thursday. One of the people was Pamela Merritt, who who told me this right after uh, they finished their remarks. I am so impressed with the fact that she had the courage to um, go under oath. My understanding is before multiple um, different bodies. She was testifying before the House. So, um, so she's already told this story um, under oath, but it is so critical that that she be supported, but also that she hear that we are so proud of her, that this is an amazing achievement, that um, facing the same consequences, I think lots of people would buckle. One of the, one of the, one of the undercurrents about uh, the woman testifying here is she told the House that Greitens engaged in some pretty heinous behavior. That's the accusations that he's denied of sexual and, and physical abuse. And I think that has, which is also again not part of these charges. No. it's an ancillary no but, part of this. But that I think has created a lot of sympathy toward this woman, even though that's not what's at, at trial here. One other thing I want to touch on that I think is actually seems arcane, but is actually really important, is the issue of transmission, because in order for this to be a felony. You have to place the picture in a position to be accessed by a computer. Is that and this correct? is yeah, and this is something that's literally never been litigated before. Is the meaning of the word transmission? It's whether it's got to be something active that you plugged it into a computer and pulled it up on Google Photo or the iCloud, or if it's just simply you took the photo and it synced to the cloud. Now, the second thing that you mentioned is pretty much what Gardner's going Gardner's office is going to argue. I mean, that's I think it's even more than that. I think it's they're arguing. Just the simple act of taking the photo and it coming from the camera, the actual camera and being translated from those ones and zeros into something that can be viewed as what we understand as a picture is transmission. And that's where the experts were supposed to come in and talk about the working of the iPhone and they may or may not be able to. We're, at this point, they're not going to be able to do that, except maybe on rebuttal. If perhaps. it comes up, yeah. And I talked with John Ammon of 
again, St. Louis University Law School. I've talked there, to several people from to there. To be fair, St. Louis University's law school is basically directly across from the courthouse. Yes. So it's yeah. not unheard of for these guys to be popping in and out no. of courts. And, 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 and Ammon was actually in court mm-hmm. on Thursday. I asked him about the issue of transmission because I think that's going to be a major issue in this case, especially since it's circumstantial evidence and they, they don't have any evidence that Crichton sent it to the cloud or put it on a computer. What the state has done, it's doubled down on saying that uh, the iPhone photograph, assuming there was one, is automatically uh, backed up, transmitted, uh, using the terms of the statute, be transmitted so uh, and, and made available on a computer. So they're, they're arguing that your iPhone is a computer. I'm not sure there's any dispute about that. And that uh, you don't have any choice in it, that if you take a picture with your iPhone, it's automatically transmitted in, in some uh, shape or form. And th- that, in some ways, that's a legal argument that the judge may decide that. Um, but we'll have to see. Right now, he's put it in the hands of the jury. But keep in mind, even at a jury trial, the judge has the ability at any point in the process to take it out of the hands of the jury by saying there's not enough evidence to proceed or I'm going to instruct the jury a certain way. So there are matters of law that will come up that Judge Burleson will rule on. As of now, again, as we talked about, the jury is going to have to decide whether this constitutes right. transmission. Right. So what? how does that affect the proceedings compared to, say, if they if Judge Burleson lets an expert in this explain that what uh, Ammon said and what Gardner is trying to prove is transmission? Well, I, I mean, I think from my interpretation, you know, Burleson's right to say the jury has to decide all of the elements of the crime. And with transmission being one of the elements of the crime, then that would be in the hands of the jury as sort of the trier of fact and of issues here. I mean, if he decides to say that this is transmission, I think that would be seen as putting his thumb on the scale of the evidence and saying, you know, jury, I don't want you to decide this. He could. As John Ammon put it, he could do it. But Burleson has been very much, I want to leave this in the hands of a jury. I think this is the proper place for it. Jurors are going to have to be the ones to decide the issues here. So a little housekeeping before we get into the political segment. Um, The judge also ruled this week that there is no audio recording of this. So you're not going to hear people argue on, on our radio airwaves or on our website. They are allowing 10 minutes of still photography in the first uh, day of trial. Correct. At, at this point in time, Robert Cohen of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch is going to be the pool photographer. Yeah, that's, that's been set. Um, it was originally supposed to be kind of a free-for-all, and I think they kind of appealed to his sense of decorum in the courtroom, and it'll be a, a professional, very good, very good guy photographer uh, fran- doing it. Frankly, I, even, <laughs> even as somebody who would have wanted to take his own photos, I think that's a terrible idea. I'm, I'm <laughs> literally right there with you. And, and, and that is no disrespect to Judge Burke. Burleson, who I I think has tried to thread a very difficult needle here. The other thing that uh, was decided was, as far as how this trial is going to be covered, the eight outlets that have been covering the pretrial proceedings for the whole time, that includes us, Mm -hmm. the Associated Press, Mm -hmm. McClatchy, KMOX, KTVI, KMOV, KSDK, and who's the eighth one? Post-Dispatch. And the Post-Dispatch, obviously. (laughs) They're all going to get 
uh, reserved seats for in the, the trial mm-hmm. in the courtroom. At this point in time, our, our, uh, Rachel and I are going to be covering this trial together next week. There's also an overflow room where people can have computers or smartphones. So most likely we'll be switching off throughout the day. One of us will be in the courtroom kind of looking for reactions. Color, what the governor says, if he's looking at KS as she's testifying. The the other person is going to be in the overflow room and actually doing work. And I actually, you know, I do want to just say this as an editorial note. I do appreciate the fact that the, the, I don't know if the judge made this decision or the media coordinator, that the people that have put in very, very long hours covering the pretrial stuff. I think stuff. it was probably sort of a a, a joint decision yes. in terms of, of uh, Bill McCormick, who's the media coordinator for our area, probably presented, hey, here's a logistical hiccup. And, yeah. you know, Burleson's aware of, of who's been there. Um, I'm sure he's talked to Tom Gross, who's the spokesperson for the courts. And I'm just saying that because I know there's going to be a lot of other media coming. They definitely should cover this. But it's not only us who have sacrificed a lot to cover this story. A lot of local outlets and a lot of people at the local outlets have spent hours and hours and hours covering this trial. So I'm just I'm just personally grateful mm-hmm. that there's gonna we're gonna be in a position to cover this. And other media outlets can get into the courtroom on a lottery basis, but they are not guaranteed a seat in the courtroom. And also the public can get into the courtroom and the overflow room as well. But um, word of advice, show up early if you want those lottery seats, because I have a feeling this is going to be the greatest show on um, turf, concrete, whatever the heck you want to call this. It's going to be a circus. Well, Rachel, I'll let you get to court, but thank you for joining me. And here's an important addendum that occurred after we recorded this segment. Greitens attorney Jim Martin announced that the special master that's looking over the data from Greitens' phone, Richard Callahan, had reviewed 16,000 images and videos, and they had not found any videos or pictures associated with the woman involved. The forensic analyst also did not observe that anything had been deleted on the day this alleged offense had actually occurred. Uh, prosecutors still want to look at Greitens' Apple account But Greitens' attorneys want to get the examination of his phone shut down. As of this taping, Judge Burleson has not made a ruling on that matter. And joining us now from Jefferson City is St. Louis Public Radio Capital Correspondent Marshall Griffin. Marshall, thank you for joining me on, on relatively short notice. Thank you. You're, you're very welcome. Glad to be here. So uh, House Speaker Todd Richardson had a press availability yesterday, and he provided a little bit more insight on what to expect when the special session for the potential impeachment of Greitens begins on May 18th. What, what did he basically say during that availability? Well, uh, first, let me start out by saying that uh, that availability was not about the special session, but just a weekly wrap up. And he didn't really he he wasn't really comfortable answering questions about the special session, but he did a few of them. Um, I specifically asked him about uh, whether or not uh, he would be trying to subpoena backers or supporters or recipients of uh, low-income housing tax credits and also whether um, he would try to subpoena uh, Missouri Times publisher Scott Fawn. Here's what he had to. Uh, here's what he had to say about that. I, I'm I'm not going to get into the specifics of what the committee is doing with their investigation, but I will say the committee uh, has interest in talking to all of the entities that have been affiliated with this story. Marshall, I think the reason both of us are interested in that question is because 
there is a lot of evidence that the money that ended up going to the attorney of the ex-husband has some connection with the low-income housing tax credit industry. And the best way to find that out for sure is to bring low-income housing tax credit developers or lobbyists or people affiliated with this before this committee and make them answer questions uh, under oath. And I think the reason it's important is that if this entire situation was brought about in the public view as retribution for Greitens killing the state low-income housing tax credit program, could it possibly change the calculus about whether they decide to impeach him or not? Possibly. Um, I mean, even though more than three-fourths of the House and Senate voted to hold the special session, that doesn't necessarily mean that the uh, same number of people would vote to impeach. And I think some people are going to want to know if there was any direct or indirect involvement or any influence from holders and um, and supporters of low-income housing tax credits. It could possibly change the equation. Um, I still think that if articles of impeachment were brought were brought before, um, all they need is a simple majority, and I think they've got that. But I don't know if, if this would affect it um, to the point of where they would not have enough votes to impeach. But it's going to be very interesting, and I, I think we won't really know for sure unless some of those uh, people are brought before the committee to testify. And that, so that's, I guess that remains the big unknown at this point. The other thing that he mentioned was kind of uh, questions about both the scheduling of potential impeachment proceedings as well as um, whether the proceedings would be more open than the House committee process has been. Here's what uh, Richardson had to say about that. Yeah, we're still talking about that and, and uh, whether we're going to do that uh, with the start of special session or we're going to do that uh, during the regular session. So that's that's a point of discussion. Will, will one, of the, one of the considerations be keeping a very open process? I, as from the, from the beginning, um, I've said we are going to have a, a fair and open process. And as part of the investigation, there are elements of that uh, that the committee has, has had to do privately. Uh, but as we move into the special session, those uh, things will be conducted uh, in a very open, transparent manner. Marshall, as we both know, uh, the House Committee investigating the governor's conduct has conducted most of their meetings away from public view, primarily to interview witnesses. What do you make of Richardson's comments about the impeach potential impeachment proceedings being more open than the aforementioned committee? I'm taking a wait-and-see approach on that. Um, my guess is um, they, they've probably, they probably want to take some more testimony, and maybe they'll do that uh, next week during the final week of session. But at this point, I would think that maybe if there is a final hearing in which they have to approve the report, that that could be open to the public and to the media. And my guess is that that will happen before June 1st. I, you know, there's they're still being very tight-lipped about um, what is scheduled. Uh, I think the general answer was, well, we don't know yet as far as when certain things might happen. But um, I heard from at least one lobbyist yesterday, just in casual conversation, who said that um, that she's hearing that they're going to try to at least whatever action is taken to do it within the first two weeks of the special session. So that suggests to me that um, maybe they kind of know what they want to do already. Well, I will just say for uh, our programming note that if the House decides to vote on something after June 1st, I will not be covering it in any way, shape, or form because I am going on paternity leave for that entire month, and I will leave it up to both you and Joe and anybody else from St. Louis Public Radio to cover that. Um, I guess my only other question for you before I let you go back to covering the Capitol 
You, you talk with legislators probably more directly than I do because you're in Jefferson City. I know you've talked to a few people that are waiting to see what happens with this trial before deciding whether impeachment is something they, they want to support. How much of an effect do you think the trial that will happen over the next week will have on, on legislative decision making? On legislative decision making, probably not much. Um, as far as the fate of any particular bills, I, I don't think the trial is going to have much of an effect on it at all, regardless of what the uh, the verdict might be. What I think it will have an effect on, though, is how some on-the-fence people who who are taking a wait-and-see approach, how they might vote during the special session. If Greitens is acquitted, um, I think we're going to see less people that enthusiastic about actually voting to impeach the governor. The other variable in that question, though, is the second felony trial related to the acquisition of a fundraising list from the Michigan News, which I'm going to talk about with Joe Manis right now. And joining me in studio today right now is Joe Manis, our crack political reporter. (laughs) Old political reporter. (laughs) I want to talk about a couple of things. One is we interviewed Shemed Dogan, a state representative from Baldwin, who we heard in the introduction. He says that if Greitens is acquitted at his trial, it does not affect the uh, impeachment process. What have you heard? Well, technically it doesn't, but I think it might affect the climate You might have some uh, legislators who might lean towards censure instead of impeachment if he uh, gets off as far as this uh, charge in the city of St. Louis. You've got a lot of others, though, who they don't care. What they're upset about is, A, the woman in the basement. B, they're upset about a number of other things, uh, notably his use of unlimited amounts of money from unidentified donors which he has used millions of dollars, not just to pay for his lawyers, but also to pay for ads attacking Republican members of the General Assembly on issues where he's disagreed with them. We'll get to that in a minute, but I want to delve into our interview with Michael Hafner. He's a longtime Republican consultant who briefly worked for Eric Greitens in early 2015. He eventually left that campaign to work for John Bruner's unsuccessful gubernatorial bid. And the reason we talked to him is he's become wrapped up in Governor Greitens' second felony charge related to obtaining a fundraising list from the Michigan Continues without that organization's consent and then using that list for fundraising purposes. And I asked Hafner directly whether Greitens directed him to basically do what he's accused of, which is use that list for political purposes. Did Greitens directly tell you to raise money using that list? So what's what occurred was that we met a couple times in January and we went through the of, donor of list. 2015. Yep. Okay. Of 2015 and we went through that donor list line by line. And this was it was an extensive uh, donor list. It had high wealth uh, individuals, it had billion dollar foundations and companies that are all given to veterans causes. And Hafner later told us that uh, he created a call list from that information that Greitens then used to raise money for his campaign. Yeah, just to clarify to listeners, the Mission Continues is a charity that the governor set up to help veterans before he ran for office. 
Um, Hafner, although Hafner only worked for him paid for about three months, he actually had worked for him unpaid for almost a year. Um, Hafner was with a consulting firm uh, led by David Barklage that had been helping the governor, then non-governor, decide uh, what to run for. They actually thought he was running for lieutenant governor. In fact, Hafner thought he was running for lieutenant governor when he's putting together this call list. The governor actually let him go in March 2015 when it became clear that he wanted to run for governor and his consultants did not. The reason this is important is that um, what Hafner was telling us was that all these major donors to the um, Mission Continues, there were some of them who wanted to give but did not want to be identified. So then they brought up the idea of setting up these uh, nonprofit groups that could hold their donors secret. And this became a huge thing for the next three years. And he delved into that when I asked him, what is the bigger picture here? Why should people care about this Mission Continues fundraising list situation? I'm going to give him a little bit longer to explain that than just a soundbite that you can hear on the radio. His team will probably try to spin this as I'm doing this because I'm a disgruntled employee that I worked for his opponent that lost. Um, uh, look, I, I mean, I was I was completely fine um, before getting wrapped back up in this thing. Um, I'm coming forward now because uh, I've been subpoenaed, and this is out in the out in the open, and I. Do believe in in uh, transparency in in campaigns, um, and have always felt that way. If if you put an attack um, against another candidate, at least be willing to put your name on it, or or let people know where where it, where it comes from. Um, going back to that campaign in uh, in you know 2016, Eric had over six million dollars in virtually untraceable money that came into that race, and that was not by accident. Um, and that groundwork was being laid way before in the very embryonic stages of the race. And I knew it, and I, I knew it was then. I knew when he went on that interview that, that he did with you guys, I, I knew what they were already planning. So it wasn't a surprise when the LG PAC money, uh, you know, came in with the kind of force that they did on the airwaves. And so this is kind of a long way of saying that, um, that voters, they didn't take into consideration, um, you know, that, that dark money that came into the race. Um, obviously, he was still elected in the primary, and he was elected in the general, general election. Um, that's something that I think people should be concerned about moving forward. By the way, uh, when he was talking about the interview with you guys, he was talking specifically about this clip from when Greitens appeared on Politically Speaking in January 2016. I think that we need to have a strong ethical culture. And what I found, and I'll tell you again, I'm completely new to politics. This is my first time in. But what I found is that the most important thing is that there's transparency around the money. We've already seen other candidates set up these secretive super PACs where they don't take any uh, responsibility for what they're funding. We saw secretive super PACs who are attacking Tom Schweik, where people hide behind these other organizations. And there will probably be I'm, more. And, and there will probably be more because that's how the game has always been played. I've been very proud to tell people I'm stepping forward and you can see every single one of our donors because we're proud of our donors and we're proud of the campaign that we are running. I th and after Greitens made those comments, the aforementioned LG PAC basically carpet bombed 
uh, John Bruner's campaign with money that we've never figured out what the source was. Right. Now, while while Greitens has never acknowledged that he was behind the LG pack, there have been a number of news outlets who have traced connections. So it's widely believed that the LG pack actually uh, was uh, run by his allies and that it was funded by his allies. And uh, this was actually the first evidence of using um, a mystery firm that was tied to one of the candidates. This may be frequent in other states, but that was really one of the first times it had been done in Missouri. And then since then, the governor sent up uh, associate, I mean, nonprofits with unknown donors uh, before he was uh, inaugurated, after he was inaugurated. Those have been used now. Some of the money is believed to be used to help pay for his lawyers. So there's all this money, and no one knows really where most of it is coming from. And what, what Hafner's interview, what was key about this is that here he's talking about over three years ago saying that this was already being formed, that actually this was proposed by some of the donors then. And a key point here, the legal issue regarding the mission continues, while it's been around for two years, um, had not been really paid attention to by uh, many politicians in both parties, but especially some of his GOP critics, until this other stuff broke with the woman in the basement. Now, because the governor is not leaving, you've got a bunch of Republican lawmakers in Jefferson City who are now looking at this and other um, issues that actually they may have a stronger legal case against the governor on those issues than on the issue of his former mistress. Thank you, Joe, for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk about this. Uh, we'll be back next week to recap how the trial has proceeded. At this point, it's supposed to begin on Wednesday because jury selection is taking a particularly long time. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. Follow Rachel on Twitter at R. Lipman. And follow Marshall on twi Twitter at Marshall G. Report. Have a great weekend, everybody. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East, we put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.